Hey, what's up? How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? All right, all right. Outstanding. So I am now joined by Bhaskar Sankara, the founder and editor of Jacobin and um, the co-author of a book that he and I and uh, Mike Beggs are working on about feasible socialism, uh, very arrogantly entitled The Blueprint. And I don't know. So is there anything else notable about you? Uh, that's it. That's it. Okay. All right. Jack Jack and, and, and yes, the the creator of uh, the blueprint, you know, <laughs> along, along with you and, and Mike, which which we are slowly making our way through. Uh, I actually wrote 500 words yesterday. I'm not sure if nice. they're readable. I have to like look over my my work now. You know, you know, like the usual rule of writing of just like like write quickly and then like edit slowly. Like I. <laughs> I've uh, abandoned that, so I'm trying to get back into that that momentum. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I, I've I've had a hard time in the last um, you know few days uh, coming, you know, having good time to uh, to to write, and then things keep coming up that somehow become urgent. But uh, but but I am slowly I am slowly getting through the chapter that I'm working on. I'm actually pretty happy about it. But we have. Um, we, I'm sure it's fascinating listening to us talk about progress on the book, but we do have callers, so let's uh, let's get to one of them. Tom. Hey, can you guys hear me good? Yep. Yep. Hey, what's up? So, uh, you know, obviously a big fan of the show, but uh, Boshkar also a big fan of your magazine. Um, I just uh, did the paid subscription thing like a year ago. I pretty awesome. much enjoyed Thanks it. Thanks a lot. And then I got the paid, uh, you know, the promotion you guys had where you pay for somebody else's. It's like a gift subscription. Yeah, yeah. And so I did that, and I got it for somebody I wasn't living with, and now we're living together. So we had all these extra magazines. So we left them at the uh, doctor's office she used to work at. So I don't know <laughs> That's how. Funny. Like, That's funny. That's <laughs> funny. Because he's like, he's like a real, like, MAGA chud, you know, <laughs> like real, like, Upper West Side conservative type. Anyway. That's, that's, I do like the idea that you walk into a doctor's office and like you get bored enough to page through a magazine and there's like Jacobin there. <laughs> yeah, I don't like you know, they got like all the other crap L and everything else. Like might as well put some something quality there. Right. So uh <laughs> so I was gonna I was gonna ask this. Um you've had like a, a, a fair amount of success with your publication, but I think this follows up with the question I, I, I was on yesterday's show with a Thaddeus Russell. Um, what's been like the hardest part of crossing over into the mainstream? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, obviously profit-based incentives to keep you guys out would be the obvious answer, but also maybe to kind of white pill the guess here, where have you had the most success? And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what, I, what I would say is that, is that Jacobin is far from mainstream, but we want to be mainstream. And I, I've always felt like that was a weird thing about our publication as opposed to a lot of maybe like literary left publications that came out at around the same time, like in a weird way, they wanted to say pure and to maintain a certain form of their work, if that made sense, because for them, the form was the thing that mattered. But for us, the thing that mattered was like the content, the politics. So, you know, we wanted to disseminate our material as wide as 
as, as possible. And the way that I think we don't always do it, but, but in theory, our goal is to reduce the barriers to entry uh, first and foremost by making something that's like really looks really good. that's designed really well, like making a website that like works, like making like little things. Like if you have a Jackman subscription and you like log in and you change your address and you want to change this or that, like our interface is legit better than almost any other publication out there. You know, that's because of our creative director or make a Forbes. But I mean, in general, it's like things like, like that, like, there's enough barriers to having radical ideas if nobody can read or understand your publication or it's shit to look at or they can't figure out how to subscribe on your site. You're just adding more barriers to entry. Um, and, yeah, I guess for me, the other tricky thing is right now, like, you know, things like that, obviously a huge cultural war kind of going on between liberals and conservatives. So how do you kind of try to avoid the culture war? Like, how do you try to have a different conversation about people's material needs and about, about class, basically? Um, a world that doesn't seem to really want that conversation, at least in the, 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 the media. So if anything, I think it's getting a little bit harder, again, to, to be on the left, but not necessarily because of a coherent anti-socialist movement, but because the media just doesn't want to talk about bread and butter issues that ordinary people are concerned about. But I don't know, Ben, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think everything that you said makes sense. I mean, I guess, I guess what I do wonder about is like, it seems pretty obvious that there is a sense in which, you know, kind of zooming out from Jacobin specifically that like socialist ideas, um, to a certain extent, I don't want to exaggerate, but to a certain extent did become a little bit more mainstream, you know, from 2015 onward, you know, like mostly because of the Bernie campaign and, and everything that happened, um, kind of, kind of following up on that. Right. Like, like it felt like even if people are often a little vague about what it, you know, what it means and, um, you know, and it's mostly, you know, and it's mostly just social democratic and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, it still seems like there's there's this sense, which Jacobin is certainly a huge part of, that uh, that like this is a position that people think of as being something that's you know separate or you know or um, part of the political spectrum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that. That's like one of the positions of the political spectrum. You know, in a way that it, it never felt like that, you know, certainly in the like nineties or two thousands or early 2010s. Uh, and I guess I, I wonder what the sort of passing of the Bernie moment does to that, because I think that, you know, the, the Bernie campaign sort of gave this obvious focal point to that, that like anybody with like the least little instinct for trying to involve themselves in, in real politics and not just sort of, um, you know, and not just sort of like have abstract debates with comrades and, you know, and, and, and publish little magazines and stuff like was kind of like sucked into like the gravitational pull of that. And now that it's over, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that like, it still seems like it still seems obvious to me that there's like way more of an opening than there was, you know, like 10 years ago. I think that's like, undeniable 
But I, I guess I do wonder if there's a little bit more of a danger now of that sort of distinctive political spectrum point. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people nowadays, when they hear that someone's a socialist, might just think like, you remember back in the day when Facebook, like when Facebook first started and you were going to list your political views on Facebook, you yeah, had that. basically four options or maybe five options. You had like uh, moderate, conservative, uh, liberal, but then also very conservative and very liberal, right? <laughs> like, yeah. A young budding socialist would just have to put down like very liberal. And I, I fear now that that there was a time when Bernie was very identified and our currents were very identified with like clear, oh, those are the people always talking about universal health care. Oh, those are the people always talking about millionaires and billionaires. Now I fear that we're just a political movement that is mostly associated with being like liberals, but even more zealous in our pursuit of things liberals care about, if that, if, that, if that makes sense. And I don't mean to counterpose, like, I'm not talking about, you know, valuable things that liberals care about. It's just more sure. kind of like a rhetoric and tone thing where we're just like, I think this is my problem with some of the squad's rhetoric, too. It just seems like liberalism, but a little bit more strident. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what I was actually about to bring up, because I think, um, you know, like, there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of criticisms of the squad that don't make sense to me. And they're kind of based on the idea that like a few members of Congress have like a kind of power that they really don't. And I still think that the policy views are almost all good, you know, but, um, but I, I think that there is like a real like rhetorical shift, even like, like our friend Bronco Markedich, uh brought up, like he tweeted out these two quotes from AOC. One of them was right after, you know, one of them, well, she was talking about, you know, the 2016 election of people who voted for Trump in 2016. And she gave this kind of very sort of boilerplate left kind of analysis about, um, you know, like like right wing populism being, you know, like playing on legitimate economic concerns and things like that. And, you know, you could argue that that's like, you know, that that like lacks some nuances that you need to add to have like an accurate picture of what really nuance is overrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think in this context that might be true. Uh, and uh, But then, like, there's a second quote where she's talking about how high Trump's vote total was in 2020, and she says that, like, like her, it's all about how we need, like, she uses the phrase, like, deep anti-racist canvassing. I don't really know what that means. Like, you go around to people's doors and, like, have struggle sessions with them. Um, and... And it, it, it just it just seems like a a really troubling move in the wrong direction. Again, not in terms of her policy preferences, but I do think in terms of like how she's talking about politics, which is, you know, in some ways the most important thing because like you know, like a few socialists don't really have the power to do much of anything in terms of, of policy in Congress because there's so few of them, but you know, they they do have a lot of power to sort of shape the way that people perceive socialist politics sorry i muted myself um yeah yeah i mean i think that 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 um i think also one thing we should we i don't want to get on a, a tangent about the sure, squad, sure. but i think i think one one thing we underestimate is to what extent a lot of these like political identities were very like fluid like to what extent even aoc's political identity as a Bernie crap, much less like mm-hmm. a democratic socialist was kind of like 
fluid, but this is obviously a person of progressive sentiments and sensibilities. Uh, so therefore is worth like in my mind, uh, support, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think, I think there was a lot of like just people who were looking for an alternative camp in American politics and Bernie was able to crystallize one. And now I think that crystallization is a lot less clear and I'm not sure the route towards resurrecting it other than without being sectarian. So in other words, like, because I think we sometimes underestimate the extent to which like what we would probably call or might call like kind of the blue MAGA type stuff Uh being stridently anti-Trump or whatever, like, actually does have a popular base. And there is also like a lot of like, you know, working class people very concerned about, about, you know, a lot of the, the issues that democratic politicians talk about. And there's also a lot of democratic politicians that don't actually, that actually have pretty complicated messaging at the level of like, they they are actually talking um, about a lot of bread and butter issues. They're just like losing anyway. Um, Uh And, and, and anyway, so I think there's a, there's a version of our case that's overstated, but in general, sure. I just would like to have a left that talks primarily about three things without leaving other things out of its program or out of like its broad kind of plans, but just hammers home um, like the areas where we're more likely to get inroads with people instead of just presenting like a wish list of like, we want this, you know, these 3000 things that we want them yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that I think that is a hundred percent right. Uh, I mean, I, I think in a way that's you know a little bit why like Corbyn won the last lost led last election in the in the UK that everybody was sort of very focused on one thing. Although it was also the one thing that I think it was hardest to have a good left wing message about. Well, uh, but I mean, and, they did uh, in twenty. I guess twenty seventeen the election wasn't about Brexit, but yeah, I think there was another universe in which Corbyn's like let's be done with it. So in other words, like Corbyn had lost the election by 2019, but it was maybe the Labour Party's fault in 2017, 2018, that they did make the election about something else by adopting, like, by sticking to, like, more neutral Brexit messaging of, like, let's be done with it or respecting the people's vote, even if we might not vote it that way or that kind of, you know, caveat. But anyway. Yeah, no, uh, I, I think I think that's right. But I think that, like, I mean, I think to your earlier point, I think that if if people are overwhelmingly focused on one thing, and if you do want to try to change the conversation to be about something else, like you, you do, you know, like, like you kind of have to pick anything or like a couple things at most that you're going to change it to, or else that's like, especially in that context, I think it's not going to work. I mean, I should also say, I mean, I do want to move on to the next caller, but I, I think like something I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately, somewhat along the lines of, you know, your nuances overrated uh, line is that, you know, like, because I mean, I think a lot of what you're talking about is like what like left, like sort of big picture left messaging should be like, like, like political campaigns and things like that. But like also in terms of what I think about a lot lately, which is like, what's the sort of useful intervention that, you know, could be done by left media, you know, as as we sort of try to, you know, to have to engage with things that we're not just going to be talking to ourselves, that we're going to be talking to to a broader group of people and uh and how how is it that we can kind of like interface with real politics in 2022 and i guess i increasingly think that it's basically two things that like there's a bunch of other stuff that i hope is going to be you know relevant very soon later but like 
I sort of think that right now the two front war is basically sort of relentlessly emphasizing that one, um, you know, the liberal vision of social justice is basically about having like pure meritocracy and a more diverse ruling class and that that's not what justice is. And then two, uh, and two like sort of relentlessly pointing out that all of the right wingers who have started to posture as anti-corporate populists are full of shit. And they're really just like rigidites. If, you know, if you like scratch the paint even a little bit. Yeah. So I, I don't have much to add. I agree with you. <laughs> but, you know, sorry. I know that like, this is technically like radio, so I should have some sort of like interesting things to say or whatever. But you know, anyway, fuck it. It's five five forty eight. I've been at work since like eight. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have a drink yet. <laughs> this is probably my like most lame uh, personality period. It's like between four and my first drink at like six thirty. You know, <laughs> you can cop in an off hour. Maybe right. we should go to the next caller. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go to the let's no, go to the next caller. Maybe while they're talking, you can pour a drink. But uh, let's uh, let's do Sam. Hey guys, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Um, so yeah, uh, I just had a quick question. You know, uh, just some for brief, brief background. Um, I'm calling from Toronto, and I consider myself personally speaking a you know a canadian liberal which by american standards is pretty much like a socialist right <laughs> like uh which you know i, I i'm for socialist. why not the uh the NDP? uh well liberal i'm in more in the philosophical oh, okay, sense okay. not the actual party oh, well, yeah but, but yeah even, yeah even canadian liberalism in that sense like correct me if i'm wrong but is it kind of like close to like an American kind of like Deweyan liberal is, is that what you mean? Like how, how would, how would you describe uh, what that, that, well, I mean, uh, I mean like generally speaking, I'm like for socialized healthcare, socialized medicine, safety net for society, rent control, uh, you know, certain measures on unemployment, disability, you know, I'm willing to pay higher taxes for all that stuff. I don't care, you know, um, but I, at the same time, I wouldn't necessarily call myself, you know, a, a socialist in that sense. But this is a, this preamble is longer than what I wanted to say, which my question is, so I, as, as a profession, what I do is I'm a real estate agent and I work with a lot of investors. And when I purchase them homes, obviously they're gonna rent out their homes to tenants. So I, in other words put, I work with a lot of landlords. And sometimes I'm conflicted about what I do in that sense because a lot of times I have to deliver the bad news to tenants that were kicking them out because the landlord wants to sell the property. But also, obviously, it's in my financial interest to do as such as well. So I guess two-parter question here. What's inherently like evil about being a landlord, um, in your opinion, or inherently morally reprehensible, uh, and the second part of my question is, as a person who considers, considers themselves like left-leaning, once again, for all these uh, social programs, uh, I like to pay higher taxes, so I don't you know, have to pay $15,000 when I break my leg. Um, is there an inherent inconsistency in my belief? Like, am I just operating some sort of, under some sort of cognitive dissonance that I'm not... Uh, you know, seeing. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll let Ben tackle this one. But first of all, I mean, you you sound like you're just a social democrat, which is definitely fine. But it's a much uh, much nicer tradition to associate yourself with than uh, liberalism, Canadian or otherwise. But on the question of of what you do, well, one, I mean, you're not doing anything wrong. You're doing kind of a a, a job to to survive. So maybe if you had a different option. Uh, you know, pursue pursue a different option. I mean, if 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 you have qualms about about what you do, um, in any sense, moral or otherwise, or it adds an extra stress or an extra layer of unpleasantness, and you have another option, then you know, pursue the other other option. But I don't think there's there's any kind of like political imperative, um, you know, there because you're just like a, a worker doing a job. But when it comes to what landlords contribute to society, I mean, yeah, I would say in general, the relationship is a, you know, parasitic is a very like loaded and intense um, word. But I guess you could say that landlords contribute limited value for the for the services they provide. So what service does a landlord provide normally? Um, one, they have rights to the property just by virtue of ownership. Either they inherited a home or they, they, they bought a home. Uh, they have to maintain the home, pay taxes on it and do other stuff like maintain the, the dwelling. And there's a certain amount of labor involved in like, I'm a, I'm a renter. My landlord, um, you know, keeps on the heat and if there's something wrong with the boiler, like he'll come by and fix it or send someone over to fix it. Like there's obviously some sort of value there. Um, but the value is totally disproportionate to um, the amount of income that they make in general off um, off these properties. And plus, they're not only making income month to month, but they're also building equity and an alternative sort of arrangement. You can imagine like multifamily homes being run as co-ops where uh, maintenance is pooled together and with a maintenance fund and the former renters themselves like get to create value in the long run for each other or you can imagine forms of public housing or you can imagine like any sort of other um arrangement so obviously that's that's the short of it like is there did do they create social value it's like not really but most of them do maintain homes and and that's some value so maybe they're not total parasites but but um, in general yes uh, what, what yeah, I mean, I I actually did write, I should say, an, an article for Jacobin uh, called um, We Need a World Without Landlords, or maybe we need to imagine a world without landlords or something like that. But I would I would make the same distinction, right? I don't think, I don't actually think that, like, being a landlord is intrinsically wrong. I think that, I think that a system in which uh, people have to to rent from landlords in order to have housing is is wrong. It's unjust. But I mean, like, I, I would make a pretty sharp distinction between saying that you know, I mean, even if we're doing the moral question, um, you know, rather than you know, sort of kind of like uh, other kinds of questions you could ask about you know about the the cost benefits of this. I, I think that. I think that you, I'd make a pretty strong distinction between, you know, whether morally it would be better to have a society that was structured differently and whether there's anything intrinsically wrong with holding a certain position within a structure. Like, 
I mean, just just a, a quick like, look, I think that the the Soviet economic system uh, was 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 unjust in certain respects. I think that there were like decisions that had all sorts of impacts on ordinary people's lives that they didn't have democratic input into, you know, because they were made by a few bureaucrats. But like, I don't think that that means that it was morally wrong to have some sort of like position in the planning structure and like the gosh plan, right? The Soviet planning office. Like I, I, I think that, I think that if you're like standing in the way of reform in a better direction, you know, I mean, that might be wrong, but I think just being like, like just like just owning a house and like renting it out. Right. I don't think that's, I don't think that's wrong in itself as individual. Well, behavior. well, hold on, hold on. I, th- I think like, I think one could say that, that if as a, as a matter of like, moral virtue like one should not make your income off the labor of other people and off and one should not make kind of like passive income off like just being an owner right so you can say like Uh, so i think in a certain moral sense the idea that like you know i don't want to be kept under someone's thumb but also on the other hand i i want the fruits of my own labor i think is like a good moral virtue and i think we could like kind of condemn people who buy homes to speculate with them or buy homes to to rent out and and kind of accumulate a surplus uh through that renting and also just say that like it's not it's like someone shouldn't be like shot for it right they they should be like like cast out of society um, and also, like, obviously, it's a system that's incentivizing certain behaviors. So we change the system, not individual behavior. But but I'd be comfortable saying that, like, I'd be morally opposed. Like, if, if one of my, you know, my sister told me uh, that she was, like, buying a home and she's going to subdivide it and rent it, I'd be like, do something productive with your time or, you know, whatever, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that, like, again, I, I could see you saying that, like, there's something that's not admirable about just like living off of what you can extract from someone as a literally rent seeking middleman um, that like, sure, I I could see that. I mean, does that mean that like, if your sister, like, you know, if my sister, sister, let's say, um, you know, has like, had an extra bedroom in her her house right and she put it up on the market or whatever i think that is a little bit different obviously because also in part it becomes even more obvious that you're paying a certain service like you're providing like maybe a somewhat short-term accommodation for Uh for someone and you're paying the property taxes and the maintenance and maybe the utilities and and whatever so anyway like all this is to say i agree with your broader point though that you know the job that you have in a particular system um, is not necessarily caused to like make yourself think that you're a bad person. It's a system. We fo- should focus more more energy on the the system. Well, I don't um, necessarily itself. think I'm a bad person. Maybe just well, can't. you're also not a landlord. I think I think we we took our example a little bit further. We took it to like the people you're you're doing yeah. business for, not. Yeah, you're yeah, not but... a you're not a you're not a piece of shit like, like <laughs> Bhaskar's sister hypothetically is. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I guess the, the larger question I, I'm trying to ask here, um, and if, if I'm uh, going on too long, please feel free to tell me, is at what point 
am I, because frankly speaking, um, I want people to have a social safety net at the same time. And I'm willing to pay for that. But at the same time, I like, I like money. I'm, I just do. <laughs> so I, uh, and I think that's, that's um, inconsistency, I guess, a lot of people have to deal with. Or So I guess at what point well, I think does there's it nothing become wrong with inconsistency? Assume, right? In other words, like I think I want a society in which more people have more money and also might have more certain range of consumption choices as a result of, of money and wealth, right? Because we all have created this, this vast riches that we have on earth through our social labor and and socialists want people to, you know, reap the rewards of, of, of that that labor. You know, obviously, I think there's there's other virtues that I like to see cultivated under socialism, like civic virtues and 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 other things in in in, in day to day life, other than just consumption. But I'm definitely very comfortable with people consuming more than even they they consume, you know, now if they if they want that. But I think a lot of people, what, what they want is not necessarily more shit to consume, but they want money because it offers security and also it offers like the freedom to maybe leave a bad situation, quit a bad job, go on vacation, Absolutely. spend some time with your family. Absolutely. You know, that's what really. So, so I think that a lot of the things that people want from money, um, like we, we definitely support too, right? Yeah, no, for sure. I also don't want the other half, I, I want to go on to the next caller in just a minute, but I, I also don't want the other half of Sam's question to get lost. Uh, I don't think there's anything inconsistent about just being a social democrat and thinking that the current system is basically fine. You just you just wanted there to be more social services and, you know, and, and, and you know, like you want to blunt some of the sharp edges. It's not my position, but I don't think there's any, you know, anything inconsistent about it. I would have, like... I do have these ideological views that uh, that there are things that are intrinsically wrong with the current system. I think it distributes power really unequally in a way that's objectionable. Uh, I, I think it, um, you know, I think there are things that are objectionable even to the sort of like nicest welfare state versions of it. Although I also think that like realistically, you know, like whichever exit you want to get off at, right, to, to adopt the Sam Cedar metaphor, right, you know, that the... I I think somebody with with Sam's views. I mean, we're probably going to be you know riding together for a little while, right? You know, but uh, but also, I I think that like I think one of the bigger reasons that I wouldn't want to stop at just social democracy that I want to go on to socialism is the is the one that's like one of the big themes of Bhaskar's first book, uh, which is the Socialist Manifesto, which is that there's a as long as you still have a society where there's this there's this group you know, like an economic elite that still has a sort of vested interest in being able to, um, you know, in, in sort of rolling back gains made by workers so they can, you know, so they can make more money and, you know, whatever, that like some of those gains are going to be really uh, unstable, right? As, as, as our uh, late friend Michael, you know, I remember once memorably put it, right? At a certain point, you have to start taking, you know, pieces off the board, by democratizing the economy, right? So that would be my that would be my case for not stopping at social democracy. But also, I don't think that there's anything inconsistent about just being a social democrat. It's just like a position that I I disagree with. I think. But um, unless Bosco wants to add something to that, let's go on to uh, to Rick. All right, Rick, either. Yeah. Hi there, guys. Um, so, uh, as a pro-market neoliberal, 
Um, I'm, I'm definitely interested in understanding uh, where thoughtful socialists like yourselves are coming from. Uh, and Ben, uh, based on things I've heard you say before, um, it sounds like you accept the kind of the Hayek Mises calculation critique of socialism and kind of acknowledge that there's uh, the market has to play some kind of role in in a proper society. Um, first, is, is that true or no? Uh, to a point, I wouldn't I wouldn't take it, I think, as, as probably as far as those, you know, definitely not as far as those guys did. I mean, I'd mean, i probably go farther than you in the calculation question of being more on the, the market side, maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, I, I think one thing that both of us think is that there are areas in which state economic planning uh, can actually be be very effective that uh, that I think that like, uh, you know, just to pick an example, the previous caller was talking about, I think the healthcare sector is a pretty obvious place uh, where like marketless planning does seem to deliver the goods, you know, much better, at least, you know, some of this might depend on which goods you care the most about, but like, uh, but but it's certainly vastly preferable from the, the perspective of the values that I care about to leaving it up to uh, to to the market, right? So I think there are things that planning could do very well, and I think it should do those things. But I also think or or things at the commanding heights, like the creation of infrastructure and 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 you know and and things like that. Like I, I believe in nationalized railways and on all sorts of other. Um, big state projects. So maybe one way to put it is like things that that maybe require a certain level of like finesse and coordination, like responding to uh, customer preferences in a very fine grain way, yeah. or you know, producing like different widgets of different like colors and varieties, and and you know, whatever. So if you think about like the Soviet dilemma, like they not only had to produce like shoes for people because everybody needs a shoe they had to uh, like different styles of shoes in different sizes and they had to like figure out a way to anticipate like the demand for what people would want like in the like next year you know and, and, and all sorts of like other other stuff that like it just was kind of a silly system to use central planning to produce a consumer good like that yeah i think i think that's right so i i think that like Probably the difference between me and Bhaskar is that I probably keep the door open just a crack more than he does to the possibility that some sort of unforeseen technological advance in, you know, the, the 23rd century will deliver us completely marketless red plenty. Uh, I, I think there are problems and I think that there are like, I think there are real concerns about, you know, even in that scenario, I think you'd have to balance some values about making sure that, you know, you did it in a way that was respecting privacy rights and that you still had robustly independent civil society. But I do think there are some reasons to want to try to all oil speed equal to want to try to expand the sphere of planning. Uh, Friendly Phillips has, you know, moved me to some extent on that, but still, yeah, I mean, I, I, but I, I, yeah, I, I guess like the crux of our argument is like, I'm not sure that if the goods being produced are produced in conditions without exploitation, I'm not sure there's necessarily a moral value in mm-hmm. having uh, less or more market. I think it's like largely a technocratic question. But anyway, I should we should let the caller finish. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the point is just certainly that like 
certainly both Bosgard I think that like for now and for the foreseeable future and you know perhaps for always right you know but certainly for the foreseeable future uh that critique that you're talking about does have some merit and like you really do like that calculation problem you know about like crucially how you line up fine grain consumer preferences with production uh and uh, and make sure all you're getting, you know, all the inputs are aligned the way that they should be, and all of that stuff. I, you know, I, I think we do. I think a reason. I think a kind of socialism that would um, that wouldn't like sort of replicate the economic disasters of the, you know, authoritarian state socialism in the in the late twentieth century. I think would have to include some market mechanisms. So right. basically, what we do, Rick, is we separate. Uh, at least in our kind of conception or model socialism, we can separate between what markets do and what private ownership does, even though for most people, especially any liberal, but for, for any advocate of capitalism, basically the two are one and the same. Like that's why in short, short form in today's media and politicians, they talk about like the market economy or the free market economy or whatever else. Um, in our mind though, you could actually have a lot of those market mechanisms working with, for example, like worker cooperatives um, and, and with like state ownership, a few ch- huge chunks of the the uh, society as opposed to um, the way we have markets work today. And markets, after all, preceded capitalism by, by you know, thousands. Of- right. So I, it sounds like there's there's clearly an advance, you know, from my perspective, there's an advance of, say, you guys relative to you know, the socialists of the 1930s or something. So I want to get at this thing that Marx definitely recognized, which is the amazing productive force of capitalism, mm-hmm. um, right? And and like you guys, presumably, he thought there was this further development that would, uh, that would be based on some kind of de- democratic process among the workers. So what I'm curious about is that like there was this Hayekian, you know, calculation argument that really, you know, was decisive in certain ways in this debate and, and at least changed the the position of the socialists. I think, you know, in the in the 60s, there was this second big event, which was public choice theory and the idea of analyzing the democratic process, not taking it as some exogenous, benevolent event that just occurs, but analyzing the mechanism of of democracy um, that would apply whether we're talking about workers voting in a worker collective or citizens voting in a political democracy. Um, and, you know, they have, in my view, a very strong argument that points out that there are all kinds of failure modes of a democracy based largely on the fact that you don't really there, there's no compensation that you get for voting rationally. You don't get any reward for that. And it becomes in kind of the more advanced forms of public choice, it becomes much more a signaling mechanism and a raw, raw kind of tribal thing than an expression of your, you know, hours and hours or days of research you put into some technical problem that you're voting on. And so so I'm I'm curious about your response to that public choice problem. So I would say, first of all, I'm not sure that people necessarily should be voting on every technical problem. So, for example, if there's a decision about, um, you know, whether to build a bridge or a tunnel somewhere and there's a lot of like very complicated reasons why one might be preferable to another or whatever else, that seems like 
a decision that can be dealt with through representative democracy or potentially through like, you know, technocrats operating with input from the people directly or indirectly. But I don't think everything needs to be this direct democratic process. Right. But the public choice argument is all about it it would apply not only in the simple direct democracy case, but it's all about what happens in a representative democracy. So all of the problems that they point out are really there. They they apply to cases in which you're voting for experts. Let's just say like um, in the basic functioning of a social society, it's not just a question of, all right, we have this calculation problem, so we're going to keep the market um, and then everything is um, solved. These actors at a worker-owned firm or worker-controlled firm are fundamentally seeking to maintain their market position, right? Uh, obviously, they're subject to regulations and taxes and, and, and whatever else. But you don't really need them to you need them to behave rationally as market actors. And then more generally, when it comes to uh, like a working class polity, I guess I would say that I want a certain type of tribalism. I want a tribalism around a working class identity. But fundamentally, I think that this identity, not by default, but through organization, can actually be highly rational in the sense of being tied to shared and collective material interests. So it might be that the American working class um, in the structure of American politics in the 50s and 60s was not very rational in certain ways or was was divided on um, ethnic and religious and racial grounds and 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 captured by little petty political machines and, and, and this or that. But you could look at other countries like you know, in Sweden or in some parts of the post-colonial world or, or whatever else where strong and powerful political movements and trade unions kind of enforced an identity that was very much tied to the delivering of material goods. And I think generally people might not try to calculate and maximize their, their material condition, but it's people just generally don't vote for, um, measures they know will directly negatively um, impact them. So I guess I, I guess like the crux of our argument isn't even a socialist versus liberal argument. It's more of a like 19th century rationalist <laughs> versus like uh, a, a critic of the idea that 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 people are or can be uh, rational actors. Yeah, I, sh- I should also say, I, I mean, I think I agree with all that, but I, I should say that speaking for myself, at least, you know, one disanalogy between how I might feel about calculation debates and how I feel about public choice theory is that, like, the thing that I, f- I find, like, the, the main reason why I find the sort of calculation concerns about, you know, about state planning in sectors involving, you know, consumer goods, uh, where these, like, fine grain preferences are really important, the reason that I find that compelling isn't so much that like, you know, Hayek and von Mises like had these a priori arguments that this would be a problem. It's, it's, you know, cause I'm, I'm actually very skeptical in general about uh, putting a lot of weight on, uh, you know, a priori economic arguments. I mean, like, I, I, I think that like you can, you know, I mean, like, obvi- like, in fact, I think that, you know, some of that, uh, except for Hayek, to, to be fair, he was the least bad about this, but like, 
I think a lot of the tradition of Austrian economics, especially, is like really like abysmal for reasons that have nothing to do with politics or anything normative, but just like methodologically that, you know, it's, it's, it's based on this kind of insane idea that there are synthetic a priori truths in economics, which is just like, doesn't make sense if you think about it for 10 seconds. Like, I think what, what they're really saying often is, well, there are these generalizations about economic behavior that sort of ring true or sound plausible in the abstract or, you know, definitely fit some part of our experience. And you could come up with 10 or 20 of these and sort of make these premises of a elaborate economic theory. And the problem is, though, that like MMT enthusiasts can do that, too. Right. You know, that uh, that people who, you know, people who think that, um, you know, people who think that Marx solved all of economics and capital in the 1860s, you know, could could do that, too. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I certainly... totally agree with that. I'm I, I my views are very similar to yours on that methodological issue. I would say the public choice theorists are probably even more empirical than Hayek and certainly a lot more than Mises. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they're not nearly empirical enough. I mean, I think that I think that a lot of this is, you know, the public choice stuff is this sort of uh, is still very much about like modeling based on a lot of simplifying assumptions that might capture some part of what happens. Uh, but I, I think there's actually a lot of observable phenomena in real politics that public choice theory just kind of can't make sense of, right? You know, and, and, and that you can sort of do this thing where you retreat to, well, you know, maybe a lot of people don't really act this way, but like enough people do over the course of time that this is going to, this is going to capture something and maybe, right. But like, again, the main thing that like really moves me about the calculation debates is the actual like empirical experience of, of what happened during these, during these uh, experiments with, um, with a fuller kind of of economic planning, and I'm I'm just much less persuaded of a lot of the uh, the public choice theory stuff, and and I also think that there's like also maybe a broader philosophical thing here, which is that I'm very wary of um, you know of like complaints about democracy that really emphasize like voter irrationality because I think they tend to overstate the extent to which uh, political disagreements are disagreements like about facts or disagreements about, you know, sort of rationality in kind of uh, in, in the, in the way that you try to implement your goals. I mean, I don't deny that they are to some extent, but I think that they're mostly not about that. I think that like mostly they're about, you know, like the sort of bigger things they're about are about values, you know, clashing values, and I would argue clashing interests. And that, and that like, if you sort of subcontract out things to the market, you know, instead of having them decided politically, I think that you're not going to solve, you know, like, I think it's, it's not going to intersect with the reasons that democratic accountability is most important. And I think especially, I think to one of the first points that Bhaskar made about how, you know, we don't want you know, worker co-ops to be like, you know, endless sort of uh, mass meetings. And even to your point that like, uh, you know, okay, you know, like some of these same irrationality objections can be made about uh, political representatives. Although again, I think the actual behavior of political representatives often doesn't really match up with what public choice theory says it would be. But like, I think that, uh, I, I think that very often, I think for a lot of kinds of businesses, like the correct model 
isn't necessarily even that, you know, you have like a workers committee that's like micromanaging everything all the time. Right. I think that there are for, for, you know, it's different for different sectors and different kinds of enterprises. But I mean, sometimes, you know, there is going to be like sort of specific technical knowledge that, uh, that it's, it's going to be better for that, you know, like that you are going to need certain kinds of managerial expertise to, to come in. Right. But I think that, you know, there's no reason why, sort of technocratic experts can't be hired by workers committees rather than being hired by, you know, someone who inherited the business or, you know, a board of directors that was chosen uh, by, uh, by, by stockholders. And, and I think that like the reason democratic accountability is, is important, or at least one of the main reasons that democratic accountability is important is not so much that in this like really micro level way that um about like what the decisions are going to be at every given moment and whether that's the best strategy for keeping the enterprise afloat or whatever uh it, it's going to be more about just sort of preventing the kinds of abuses that you're going to have uh without democratic accountability and and just and and maybe just the sort of intrinsic objectionableness of of making decisions that impact people without giving them more more input on it. Right. So, so I don't, I don't want like, and you know, I'm very like anti anarchist about like organizational models. Like, like I, I, you know, I think the, I like any form of socialism that would involve going to meetings all the time. I'm, I'm very no thanks to, you know, like I, I had a couple of years where I had to go to like faculty meetings once a month and I would like regularly want to shoot myself, you know, because, because like the experience of like grinding through, hours and hours of it, you know, is, uh, is, is so unpleasant, but, uh, but I, I do think, um, but I also think it's important, even if you have delegated people who are going to make certain decisions, even if you're hiring outside technocratic experts for certain things that you have that, that check of democratic accountability. And I think that's the thing that I'm going to care the most about. All right. Thanks for those remarks. Just one, one thing quickly, do you have like, is there something that pops in your mind as a good socialist critique of public choice, uh, uh, like an author or something? Uh, uh, yeah, let me think about that. I, I've got, um, I can, yeah, I'm trying to think what I would like recommend without hesitation. Um, Bhaskar, do you, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, well, I guess like a lot of the like analytic Marxists, like very very close to like rational choice theory. So there, there probably is an implicit critique in in there. Um, like for example, Vivek Chipper in his in his book, like basically comes to like a soft version of of um, you know rational choice theory and kind of explaining how. You know, in in his mind, human beings won't do anything to like materially hurt their most fundamental interests, like in survival and whatever else. And he kind of uses that to critique post-colonial theories, notion of like uh, critique of, of Westernality. So it's like a very soft version, but but no, nothing nothing off the top of my head. Yeah, well, we should ask we should ask Mike if if anybody if anybody would be able to come up with a good answer to him, and and I think. Um, and and then, uh, then maybe I could tell you in a future in a future conversation. I mean, I, I should say too. I'm, I'm doing the. Uh, I'm probably very irresponsibly, sort of like 
you know, going through stuff I've seen people argue back and forth about online and impressions I get from reading a little bit here and there, different articles and, you know, spouting off, which, uh, which, which of course the, uh, the format, you know, the format encourages, but, uh, but I, I, I will try to get a better answer for you for sure. Wait, so, so like one of the, it's, it's funny that one of the, um, like, I guess the logic of collective action is the book that I think of when I think of uh, like public choice theory. Uh, maybe maybe that's like Ron, but it's funny that like probably the most important book for me to understand um, when workers fight and when they don't fight um, uh, kind of the, the feeds into my 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 very soft version of, of rational choice is actually a book by Arthur and and um, Wiesenthal or a long essay called the two logics of collective action. So anyway, that's, that's probably, uh, I, I don't know if Ben actually ever wrote that, but it's kind of deep inside his, uh, read that, but it's deep inside his, his bones if you, you do this. So I would definitely recommend checking out that. It's like two logics of collective action. I think it's like theoretical notes on class and organization or something, something like that. And it was like two Swiss professors from the. All right. Awesome. All right, let's get. Uh, I want to end it at six thirty on the dot, if possible. But let me just uh, let's just get Thomas in here. Oh, hello. Yep. Hey, uh, thanks for doing this, guys. Uh, this has been uh, really interesting. Uh, I. So I was I was happy to hear that you guys are doing a book, uh, the Blueprint. I guess a Jay Z reference there um for for socialism uh so i kind of want to ask a question hopefully this isn't too big for uh five minutes but um sort of my question was do you think the path to socialism is through social democracy or like straight through the dictatorship of the proletariat like i guess that's kind of like the bernstein versus lenin luxembourg kind of debate yeah, what I would say is that, um, well, fundamentally, I believe that, that I believe in a social democratic road to, to socialism, but I don't think that's necessarily incompatible with Luxembourg in the sense that, like, even what 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 Marx, for example, meant when he meant dictatorship of the proletariat, it was more like a dictatorship in, like, a Roman sense of, like, a kind of a period mm-hmm. of, like, of, like, kind of class rule, not personal, um... Yeah, uh, dictatorship. And and I think, in other words, if we say that we want a very slow transition and we want to march through social democracy to socialism, uh, you know, I think in theory that makes the most sense. But what it misses is how dynamic politics is. So you could have, you know, years and years where, like, it doesn't seem like anything happens or it doesn't change a needle. And then all of a sudden you'll have massive leaps in consciousness and organization. And people start demanding lots of new stuff and kind of like, and so, so I think, in other words, the pace of progress won't be incremental. Um, there will be periods of, like, very just, like, rapid fluctuating um, situations. And there will be periods where I think, like, a lot of bad norms that exist today like could be upended very very quickly so i definitely lean more towards the like slow revolutionary side but i think what we could get and remember from luxembourg is um there are moments where there's leaps in consciousness when things that were unthinkable yesterday you know can become possible tomorrow and actually in the context of a serious like growing working class movement that's a lot more likely than 
in the context of just small little radical circles of people saying very radical things, which is kind of what we what we have now. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think that, um, you know, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think Rosa Luxemburg is right about a lot. Uh, and that although, you know, I mean, I, I do think she has a more sort of like immediate, like, you know, revolution next week kind of, uh, you know, kind of view in, in, uh, in some ways, right. Although she was, a, she was critical of, uh, um, of, you know, she did, she did actually oppose the, uh, the, the insurrection that she died in, uh, in the internal deliberations of the, uh, German communist party. Uh, you know, she thought they should participate in the next election cause, cause it wasn't going to work. But, um, but I, I, I do think the sort of larger point is that, um, it's it's definitely true that um that like Rosa Luxemburg and you know probably Marx like dramatically underestimated uh the uh the extent to which it is going to be a long march in you know developed capitalist societies you know and and the extent to which that road is going to be about fighting for for reforms i i i think they you know, I mean, I think for under for historically understandable reasons, I think they were just wrong about that. I think I think that it is going to be like I think most of the road that leads to socialism is a uh, is a road that that lies through um, social democracy uh, for sure. But also, I I think that like I think when you hear that, like what people sometimes and, and I correct me if I'm I'm misunderstanding, Bhaskar, but I, I mean I think this is what you're saying. I think sometimes. When people hear that, what they hear is, oh, like, we're just going to do this, like, very quiet, like, sort of like, you know, one, you know, one tiny increment a year for the next hundred yeah, years. Yeah, so, so Luxembourg's critique of Bernstein was essentially, he would just, like, add drops of, like, lemonade to the ocean, and then one day, there will be ocean and, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, but and, and, I, and think, to... I think in Luxembourg's defense, too, though, and, and London's defense, to, to some extent, and all yeah. these other thinkers, they were living in a time of revolution. And I guess my thing is, I think that we are living in a time of relatively stable... Um, democracies in which the state has a lot more legitimacy than the German monarchy right after the losses of in World War One or the Russian czar had. And I think that's like fairly obvious. It's kind of like almost absurd saying it out loud. But I, I think that a lot of some people on the left side of politics like don't reflect um, that. So so I guess like uh, it just seems to me pretty common sense that if you don't have the class power to get Medicare for all, it is kind of like silly to demand all power to the Soviets. But, you know, if all of a sudden it seemed viable, then, you know, I'd be willing to go for it. Yeah, well, no, so, I, I, you know, hard say, but I did just want to add before we throw back to Thomas for a minute that they have that like to, to make to make some of this a little bit more vivid, I think, in the American case. I mean, look, we didn't even get the New Deal through some sort of gradual process of adding drops of lemonade to the ocean until it was made of lemonade instead of salt water, right? We, like, we we got the like like the sort of New Deal, or at least the heights of it are you know of those achievements is inextricable from this like really tumultuous wave of sit down strikes that happened in the 1930s that that sort of built the modern industrial unions that were a lot of the foundation of that sort of, you know, new deal, great society liberalism. So, I mean, I think you, I think even, 
even those like sort of quasi social democratic achievements at various points in American history, like the New Deal and Great Society, I think in some ways were results of these like sort of like very chaotic sort of lurches forward and 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 I think there could totally be lots of those, but also yeah, I mean I don't think I don't I I, I don't think that there's any way that you're gonna convince people in the kind of society that Bhaskar is describing, this like extremely stable society with this level of popular legitimacy that like no government, you know, certainly in Europe in uh in nineteen, you know, seventeen or eighteen or whatever had uh, that like I don't think you're going to get people wanting to change the entire system without going through a pretty extended process of of fighting for things that sort of make sense to people, aren't a flying leap into the unknown, that that meet sort of immediate material needs within that system. I mean, does that make sense to you, Thomas? Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. Um, I I mean, I think you guys make a lot of great points. Um, I mean, I guess. One little retort would be, I guess, that, uh, I mean, Bhaskar, you mentioned that, uh, you know, in a society where we we can't, you know, mobilize the strength to get Medicare for all, how can we get a, you know, a revolution, right? Um, I mean, I, I guess, theoretically, right, the Bolsheviks didn't have the power to get, I don't know, like, even, like, minor democracy, <laughs> really, <laughs> right? But they did. Uh, I mean, they had the power to, to basically, you know, help take control of like Petersburg and uh, yeah, Petrograd yeah. in 1905 and bring the, you know, Russia, Russia, Russo Japanese war basically to, you know, a halt. Um, and, you know, I don't know. They, they had a lot of other class power that was expressed in different ways that, mm. that you know, I, I get your point, but like, I do think that like, in the condition of like an autocracy as a powerful opposition, it is kind of like all or then like nothing and then all, if that makes sense. Like you yeah. are kind of the parallel state until you become a state. Whereas when you're a, a legal force operating in a democracy, there are manifestations of your strength that you see before you take power, unless you're locked out of power, like the Italian communist. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I would also I would also add that like um there is going to be some connection between how you achieve socialism and what that socialism looks like, right? Like that the um uh, that like what was actually achieved in the Soviet Union was very different from what like, you know, Lenin and Trotsky and Rose Luxemburg and all those guys, you know, initially envisioned the kind of society they were fighting for as being. And you can't, I think, separate that from the fact that it was born in this condition of of civil war where like you know you you like you have a young soviet state that like you know couldn't you know that couldn't survive you know without becoming repressive in certain ways that are going to snowball and whatever so like i i i think that i think that if you want your socialism not to look like that then that's that's a good reason to at least you know to at least hope that there's a different way to achieve it Cool. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, thanks for thanks for answering the question, guys, and for doing this whole thing. I appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Thomas. Uh, so we are later than I wanted to cut off, but Antonio, you've been very patiently waiting. Can we do like a lightning round kind of question? Uh, let me get Antonio next caller. Uh, sure. Can you hear me? Yep. Uh, great. Uh, well, I don't know if. I actually was uh, put myself at the back of the line again because I wasn't quite sure how best to formulate this. But basically, uh, it seems to me like a lot of the lack of uh, 
the lack of uh, worker conscience and uh, labor power that exists in the U.S. has happened because like the uh, global economy became more sort of centralized with you know uh, things moving moving abroad which i mean I, at least from what i from what i uh, from what people have told me it sounds as though this is part of the reason that you know the uh, in in a lot of other countries you do have much more you know class consciousness and uh, political movements based on that so sorry yeah i mean the only thing i would just interject there is that i mean i think Every single country has had to deal with, like, the pressures of globalization and other stuff. Like, it's happening in Sweden and other places. Like, in many ways, like, the lack, it like, sounds almost pathological, but, like, the lack of, of power in the U.S. for labor has just meant that we've had less control over these changes. But I think, like, the biggest, like, material factor, let's say, in the 90s, whatever, was less outsourcing and more... Um, and more automation, just do technological development, and less even. I hate to like. I wouldn't probably wouldn't put it this way because it's, it's like ruins one of our best populist points. But less even like NAFTA and more just like technological change and workers being too weak to like, you know, steer it. And even when it comes to like deindustrializations and unions getting weaker in the U.S. even compared to what they were in the '60s and '70s, a lot of that's like movement from states like Michigan to states like Georgia. Like just the moving to areas with less union density rather than jobs growing abroad. And, you know, at the same time, like German car manufacturers are moving production to the U.S. because our labor is like way cheaper than, than German, uh, German labor. Yeah, uh, which, is, which is a funny example since I, I, I have literally made exactly that that move being from Michigan and now living in Atlanta. But, um, you know, it's, it's not because I could, uh, you know... Um, people could exploit my podcast labor for cheaper in, in Atlanta. It's because of my wife's job, but, uh, but, but Antonio, does, does that kind of address what you're, what you're getting at? I mean, uh, partly because I mean, even though I guess I, I, I might have overstated my belief in how much the, uh, the trade, I, I, I didn't mean to imply that the, the, the trade deals were the end all and be all and that the, it was all about outsourcing, but it does seem as though, uh, more and more of the wealth in the U.S. comes from extraction of surplus value from other from other countries. So, so and, what I would say, what I would say though, is that like, all right. So, there's two things. One is like, I actually would not think of it in terms of the U.S. is getting wealth extracted from other countries because one, I, it's a little, it's kind of like a complicated way to way to approach it. But like, you know, like foreign the U.S. is investing in other countries or U.S. corporations are investing in other countries. And obviously, um, many of them are making profits from from other 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 countries. But like, kind of like is a way that, that makes it seem a little like zero sum. Like a U.S. company investing in India might have might be expanding their back office or other stuff that's going on in the U.S. Yeah, you know. Two um, and U.S. consumers might be benefiting from purchasing power based on having cheaper commodities from there, but then that might expand other parts of the the economy based on what they do with their extra, you know, um, consumption. Um, but I would say, like, there's one obvious truth which you're you're getting at, which is that you know, once companies have 
the opportunity to um, to kind of invest elsewhere. Um, if they find they just have an extra avenue when um, they find that they're not making enough profits in their home country. So if a capitalist in Sweden's like, you know, my labor union's getting a bit too militant, like there's too much trouble brewing at home. I don't like this regulation. Like now they have other avenues for potentially like productive investment um, elsewhere. Whereas in like past areas with more capital controls, they wouldn't have that opportunity. I would just be somewhat wary of uh, seeing the economy as like a zero sum game um, in the sense of like these other countries like have the potential to develop too and have the potential to boost their own, um, you know, organizing power. Um, and I don't know, sometimes the left just, I think, views a lot of these stuff in a very zero sum way, but I'm, I'm like totally exhausted and haven't eaten since like noon. So yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. not, we not, gotta, not sorry, the sharpest version. No, no, I'm not doing the sharpest version, version of this, but I think Ben could probably do a much stronger summation. <laughs> I don't know if I can actually, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think all of that makes sense. I, I, I think that the sort of, um, I mean, I think the only thing I would add to the points that you're making about how, um, you know, the, you know, the sort of trade deals have limited explanatory value, uh, but they definitely do play a role in undermining bargaining power. Uh, and also, and that, you know, the, the sort of kind of uh, technical economic critique you gave of this sort of like, you know, global hyper exploitation theory that's commented on the left. Um, but I, I also think it's, I, I mean, I think, I don't, I don't think I have anything to add to what you're saying descriptively, but I, I would maybe just say politically, I think there's a reason to be really wary of those kinds of like, um, you know, third world hyper exploitation narratives, because I, I, I think that sometimes at least the sort of cruder versions of them, and I'm certainly not suggesting that this is what you're saying, Antonio, but, uh, but I think sometimes they can suggest that we sort of have to pick between like, you know, anti-imperialism and, and, and having, you know, having nice things at home. And, and that's, and that's definitely not true. Right. I mean, that, that, uh, that we can, you know, that we can absolutely have both of those things. In fact, those those go together nicely, and that there there are, um, I don't, you know, so like I think that, um, you know, and and I think that we can have like, you know, I think you could have social democracy that like goes along with sort of a healthier form of development in the third world without those things really being in in conflict, but. Um, oh, I did. I didn't mean to imply that we. That I didn't mean to imply an anti. An anti-trade stance, or that any any. Uh, but but I uh, but I think it is point. right to say that labor needs more power over the process of of you know over these development questions, and sometimes and then then it, sometimes it's a technocratic question. Like you might need to shelter some industries sometimes in a way neoliberal orthodoxy won't want you to shelter them. Uh, you know, as part of a long-term development strategy. Um, so again, I'm not kind of like advocating some sort of like left, like neoliberalism, but, um, to be, to be, uh, clear, but so your, your point is definitely like the well, well taken over overall. So Ben, do you want to take James's really quick and then, then we'll, we'll wrap up with that one or, or, or what? Ah. Okay. Okay. 
yeah, let's 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 really make this quick. Uh, but um, but yeah, James, let's do it. Hello. Yep. Hey Ben, can you hear me? I can. There's quite a bit of background noise, but I can it hear you. It sounds like you're getting feedback. It sounds like what? I think that I am a huge G.A. Cohen fan, like my default when I read something by him. Is that but, uh, but I think that the, uh, sorry, I'm just going to, uh, yeah, here we go. So I am a huge G.A. Cohen fan. My default when I read something by him is just kind of agree with it. But I have to say his critique of Rawls is the element of Cohen's, you know, normative philosophy that I'm the least persuaded by. Uh, you know, in, in ways that kind of go back to the landlord discussion uh, that, that I think he, I think in the sort of last phase of his career, Cohen leads way too much into to this um, sort of overextension of concepts of individual, of like, you know, institutional justice into individual morality. Uh, and and I think sort of loses something about, you know, his his earlier advocacy of historical materialism, but... Um, yeah, I wish there was more that I could think of off the top of my head that's critiquing it, but I will just say really briefly, um, I think that it, I think it's reasonable to say that there might be a fuzzy boundary between what counts as a basic institution and what doesn't, uh, you're going to have gray area cases, but I'm not sure that that means that the distinction itself doesn't make sense. And I think a lot of the examples that Cohen brings up are actually things that I would regard as like individuals mis you know individuals maybe mistreating each other in ways that could totally be solved uh by institutional change right like like he gives the example of a uh family that like only you know only is only willing to pay for like their son and not their daughter to to go to school and think okay but like this is this this actually seems like it is you know i mean not that i wouldn't like you know, be mad at somebody I knew who did that. Of course I would, right? You know, I think that's a very, like, unvirtuous individual behavior. But I think to the extent that this seems like an issue of societal justice, I think the societal injustice is that, you know, parents are able to make decisions like that in the first place because, you know, higher education isn't free, right? So so that would be, I wish I had, like, spe really specific reading to recommend to you, but that would be, like, at least a sort of 
flavor of one of my objections to Cohen on that point. Uh, Bosco, do you want to add anything? That sounds like I actually would love to hear you break down Cohen's uh, objections to Rawls um, and your response. I would actually, yeah, I, I would, I would sign up for the Patreon for, the, for that one. No, I'm serious. I, and yeah, I would have nothing to add, but I would definitely listen. Okay, well, well, we'll have to do that. So Bosco will get on the GTA Patreon. But uh, in any case, uh, we really do have to go, and we'd really do have to give Bosco a chance to eat. And I, have, I have another commitment. Uh, uh, so uh, we are going to have to cut it there. But thanks, guys. This has been really good. Uh, they were all really interesting questions. Uh, and uh, thank you, Bosco. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Um, yeah, thanks everyone, and uh, take care. All right, great. Thanks. Left is better.